Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Pandemic profits, big tech breaks records in the second quarter. COVID costs, Jay Powell's latest take on Delta variant and inflation. And Robin Hood, meet the sheriff. Regulators ask questions ahead of the IPO. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Once again, great to be with you this Wednesday and lots to discuss, including the U.S. tech earnings blowout, China stabilizing after their stock market wipeout. And yes, as I mentioned, we're also on J-PAL taper talk lookout, the Fed policy stakeout and $57 billion worth of profits for Apple, Alphabet and Microsoft. Yes, you heard me there. Front and center today, the Nasdaq staging a pre-market recovery after Tuesday's 1% drop. We've also got Boeing set to rally some 5% after reporting a surprise profit. And Europe is breaking a two-day drop after strong earnings from both Deutsche Bank and Barclays earlier today. Barclays is up some 3% too in London after raising its dividend and increasing share buybacks. You can see it there up 3% in the session today. And it's another volatile day for Asia tech, but the Chinese tech giants, Alibaba, Baidu and Tencent did manage to end the session higher. Same too for the Hang Seng Index after losing some 8% in the past two sessions. You can see they're staging a 1.5% recovery. The difference today, actually pretty simple. Chinese state-run media intervened to calm market nerves. Various market-focused newspapers, including the Chinese Securities Journal, telling investors that fundamentals haven't changed, that the market will stabilize, and recent declines reflect the misunderstanding and venting of emotion, quote, related to their policies. I have to say there remains plenty of uncertainty about the future of regulation of growth sectors like food delivery, like online education and property management too. So it's not over yet. Stressful times for Chinese investors, profitable times, meanwhile, for U.S. tech and their investors. And that's where we begin today's drivers. Claire Sebastian has been keeping track. And Claire, these numbers are just monumental. We should be somewhat used to this by now, but I'm simply not. I'll repeat, $57 billion worth of profits in the April and June quarter for just these three names. Yeah, Julia. And when you consider that these companies, these three companies worth a combined uh, more than six trillion in market value, it is it is eye watering the, the kinds of growth rates that we're seeing. Even Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple on uh, the call, called called some of the growth companies seeing jaw dropping. So I think, you know, they surprised even themselves. Some some key trends to pull out with Apple. The iPhone is really booming. Before the pandemic, we were discussing whether or not the world was reaching iPhone saturation. That does not seem to be so. This is a product where there are uh, more than a billion active devices globally seeing another 50% uh, growth in this quarter. The sum of that, of course, is a lot of that, of course, is, is upgrades. There's a lot of appetite for the, for the newest, the 5G-enabled phones. Apple's still in the early innings of that, uh, according to Tim Cook. For, for Alphabet, the story really is a, a resurgence of online advertising. Last year, uh, in, this, the, in the June quarter, companies were really slashing their budgets, trying to sort of rein in any spending during the pandemic. It's now back. Uh, uh, Alphabet's core advertising business was up 69%. YouTube YouTube advertising up 84%. This is a huge 
growing area. And another key trend that does not seem to be decelerating as the pandemic, uh, you know, may or may not be waning is the work from home hybrid cloud uh, businesses. Microsoft saw around 50% growth in Azure. Google Cloud, they're diversifying away from just advertising. Google Cloud also growing some 54%. Microsoft should be looking closely at that. So all of these trends that, that many had, had discussed whether or not they might be sort of transitory uh, during the pandemic, clearly not so. They are here to stay uh, an extraordinary growth rates today from these companies, Julia. I know. If you weren't growing 30, 40, 50 or 60 percent in some of these business lines, then you were drastically underperforming, which I think says everything. Um, what we did hear, though, was some elements of caution. And we've already talked about it, Claire, in terms of the chip business and, and what impact mm. that's going to have, whether it's on iPhone sales or iPad sales or for where we're talking about Microsoft, them just saying, look, if, if people aren't able to produce the number of PCs, then we're not going to be selling the numbers of Windows subscriptions. And that did filter through in these numbers. It did. And I think that shows the scale of the problem, Julia, when the giants who, who are so nimble and so able to diversify their supply chains, not to mention sort of make their own uh, semiconductors, that, that they are affected by this as well. Apple saying that they were able to mitigate some of the expected impact to, to iPhones and iPads, particularly in this quarter, but they expect it to get worse in the September quarter. They're also affected, of course, by the, the sort of collision of the supply chain constraints and the surging in demand. And it's not just chips there. Tim Cook saying that he, he, he would like to be paying a little less for freight. That probably something of an understatement. And Microsoft as well saw a 20% drop, for example, in, in sales uh, from their, their Surface uh, laptop line. And they expect another drop in the next quarter uh, of the low teens, they said. So these companies are also affected. They are also working to mitigate. And it is going to affect growth uh, going forward. I think that's why you see uh, some hesitation from investors around Apple stock today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for breaking down all the details from that. Fascinating numbers, monumental levels of profits. Claire Sebastian, thank you. And some of these challenges are also going to be key just hours from now when the Fed delivers another key policy statement, not to mention Delta variant fears, of course, creating fresh problems for the perennially patient Jay Powell. John Harwood joins us now from Washington. John, fantastic to have you with us. Two key elements of this, I think, that we're going to be focusing on pricing pressures, supply chain pressures, but also to what extent he talks about how the Delta variant is going to impact their forecast, particularly in light of what we heard from the CDC overnight, deciding to reiterate mask mandates for vaccinated individuals indoors too. Lots, lots for them to uh, discuss today. Julia, think about all the conflicting pressures swirling around Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve Chair at the moment. Uh, You've got both the uh, uh, steady growth that we're experiencing in the economy, but also this burst of inflation. Don't know how long it's going to last. Consumer confidence is pretty strong, yet you've got millions of people still uh, out of the labor force and uh, the job count is down. And now you've got the resurgence of the Delta variant, uh, which is causing a shift in approach to the pandemic potential impacts on the economy. All of this, as Jay Powell is going to try to figure out how quickly the Federal Reserve uh, is going to taper its accommodative uh, monetary policy and uh, uh, further how it's going to react if and when uh, inflation uh, persists beyond the short term. When do you uh, begin to raise rates and how do you engineer a soft landing? Very difficult job for Jay Powell. And he's trying to manage all this, of course, as his term is about to expire and President Joe Biden's got to decide whether or not to reappoint him. I mean, 
the concerns about the Delta variant and the uncertainties regarding that, one of the arguments for him saying, look, we need to be patient here and just simply take it day by day and see how it goes, even with the price pressures that we're seeing. But to your point, it's um, it's a fine line to be walking. John, speaking of President Biden, we're going to hear from him today on Made in America and new rules, perhaps, for how and what you define in terms of the manufacturing process and what needs to be made in the United States. And it sort of ties to what we've seen throughout the pandemic and the challenges of managing the supply chain for goods. Uh, this, Julia, is where uh, economics meets politics in yeah. the American system. Of course, this is true of many uh, democracies around the world. Uh, people are concerned about jobs going overseas, and politicians respond by saying, well, we're going to make sure that we make our uh, uh, purchase decisions with an eye toward American manufacturing. That may not be the lowest cost option, uh, but there are other reasons in addition to uh, simply cost uh, for uh, trying to uh, keep some uh, manufacturing in the United States. We saw that during the pandemic when you had uh, the supplies of some of the uh, medical uh, goods, the masks and other things coming from overseas, the United States wants to preserve that capacity for national security reasons. So uh, again, this is uh, one of those cases where you've got a president who says, I am on the side of working Americans, on unionized Americans, blue collar Americans, and trying to demonstrate that by uh, amping up the amount of American content in goods purchased by the federal government. Yeah, beautifully put, though, John, where economics fundamentally meets politics. We'll see what he says today. John, great to have you with us. John Harwood there. Right, what's under the hood at Robinhood? FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, is looking into the fact that the popular trading app CEO is not licensed by the agency. This comes just ahead of the company's much-anticipated public debut. Matt Egan joins me now. Matt, and this is one of the stories that you picked up on right in the beginning. But I think we just need to understand what the issue is here, because my understanding is if you are the CEO of a parent company, and that's what the CEO of Robinhood is, then you don't need to be licensed, regulated by FINRA. So what's the issue here and what might regulators be asking questions about? Well, Julia, legal experts have told me that this is a bit of a gray area. Mm. FINRA um, does require that the CEOs of registered broker dealers get licensed with the agency. Now, the goal is to make sure that these executives get the training, that they demonstrate the competence that they need for these important jobs, and also it lets the public uh, track whether or not there's any violations. Now, Robin Hood would argue, to your point, that it's in the clear here because Vlad Tenev is the CEO of the parent company that owns the broker dealer. Um, but some experts that I talked to um, in February when we reported on this news, they were alarmed by the fact that Tenev is not registered because he's the public face of the company. I mean, recall how he testified um, in front of Congress earlier this year during the, uh, the, the Reddit and GameStop uh, hearings. Um, there's also one former compliance officer told me that this is a huge story uh, on a scale of one to 10. It's a 10. I think the key, though, is going to be um, how regulators conclude um, just how involved Vlad Tenev is in the sort of the day-to-day operations of the company. Um, and, and some of Tenev's previous comments could come back to haunt him. Uh, he did that interview on Clubhouse with Elon Musk earlier this year, where he described being really involved in some of the uh, negotiations, the very delicate negotiations with Robinhood's clearinghouse over how much capital the company needed to put up. Um, now, we don't know how this is going to end as far as this investigation, but clearly, Julia, regulators are looking very closely at Robinhood ahead of this blockbuster IPO. 
Yeah, and they do have a president that heads up each of these individual business lines, whether it's the clearinghouse operations, whether it's the brokerage too. And I guess that's the other point that they're going to make here. And there is precedent. Does Jack Dorsey have a FINRA? No, so Jack Dorsey is is not registered with FINRA. Um, However, Charles Schwab, CEO, is registered with FINRA. And Webull, which is a a rival of Robinhood, um, their CEO is also licensed uh, with FINRA. So as I said, it is a bit of a gray area. Yes. Interesting. And also, they're also having uh, questions asked as well of um, meme stock trading, I believe, by Robinhood employees. So there's a number of things going on here. So there's going to be plenty of questions asked. And of course, the IPO tomorrow. Matt Egan, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right. Up next. The new Barbie boom sales surge after a 21st century makeover for Mattel's brands. We've got the CEO. Wow, nice moustache there. And Simone Biles, bravest feet yet. The star gymnast gives up gold medal hopes to champion her mental health. We take a look at the changing conversation around performance. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with an update on the stories making headlines around the world. In Thailand, hospitals are being overwhelmed by soaring numbers of COVID-19 cases. Authorities in Bangkok plan to turn 15 passenger trains into isolation units for coronavirus patients waiting for hospital beds. On Wednesday, the country reported its highest ever tally of new cases in a single day. An extreme heat wave and unusually dry weather didn't cause the wildfires burning across southern Europe, but they are making them far worse, leaving behind unprecedented damage in some parts, as CNN's Scott McLean reports. Day turned to night. In Sardinia, dark plumes of wildfire smoke blot out the sun. Wildfires are raging across the Mediterranean island. It's dangerous to stay in one place too long. A disaster without precedent is what the president of the Sardinia region calls it. He declared a state of emergency on Sunday. Hundreds have been evacuated, and the Italian government had to call in help from France and Greece, who sent firefighting planes. Sardinia is hardly the only European region struggling with wildfires. Catalonia has managed to stabilize most of a wildfire that burned nearly 2,000 hectares of land. We have felt very helpless not being able to do anything. We were here watching the flames, we're getting closer and closer, and we cannot do anything. Just over the Pyrenees in southern France, it took 800 firefighters to bring a blaze under control. They say they're still worried about the parched earth that could be jet fuel for a new fire. And in Greece, too, dozens of firefighters are battling an inferno just north of Athens, warning residents to close their windows and doors. It comes, of course, just weeks after devastating flooding in Germany and Belgium killed more than 200 people, with over 100 still missing. Droughts are becoming more frequent and more severe in southern Europe. European environmental authorities say that this region is at greatest risk on the continent as the impacts from climate change increase. The fact that erratic weather patterns are going to be the new normal means that we need to adapt to that and we need to prevent things getting worse. And if we don't do something urgently, and urgently I mean now, then, you know, Climate crisis is going to get completely out of control, and and our citizens do understand that we need to act now. And as extreme weather and fire becomes the new normal for more and more of us, that action cannot come soon enough.
Scott McLean, CNN, London. The UK is expected to soon announce its fully vaccinated travellers from the United States and the EU can avoid quarantine when arriving in England. Right now, only people vaccinated in the UK are exempt from spending time in self-isolation. The government is under mounting pressure to help the travel industry return to some degree of normality. Olympic tennis organisers in Tokyo will push back Thursday's start time for matches a few hours because of hot and humid conditions. A Spanish player pulled out of her women's singles quarterfinal match due to heat stroke. Officials say the decision was made in the interests of players' health and welfare. Okay, second quarter sales at Mattel. The makers of Barbie and Hot Wheels are up 40% year on year. Net losses have narrowed as the company uses its intellectual property to the max, diversifying into things like film, TV and games. But the core toy product remains a stronghold. Sales of dolls rising some 51% thanks to super brands like Barbie, American Girl and Polly Pocket. Ian Increase is Mattel's CEO and he joins us now. I'm fantastic to have you on the show. Another strong quarter, as far as I can see, looking at these results. Talk us through it. Yes, Julia, these are exciting times for Mattel with another exceptional quarter. Our strength is broad-based, and we significantly outperformed the industry and gained market share in each region. We are now firmly in growth mode, and our top-line performance is adding momentum to our transformation strategy. We expect to continue growing for the rest of the year, and achieve double-digit growth in sales for the full year with high growth in profitability and and cash flow. I think one of the big questions, and it all sounds great, is to what extent supply constraints, shipping costs are going to impact prices, despite the strong performance that you're talking about as we run into the holiday season here. You've suggested that prices will have to rise. Can you give us any numbers on this? What are you seeing Yeah, we do see some inflationary pressure. Uh, We actually saw that as well, uh, some supply chain uh, challenges in the second quarter, but we were able to manage through global global supply chain uh, disruptions and had very little uh, impact on on results in the quarter, essentially immaterial results, uh, uh, impact on our results in the quarter. So this is what we do. We have very strong supply chain capabilities, uh, large and scaled network, and given the strength and, and, and capabilities that we have, we believe we'll be able to manage through these disruptions. When there, when there will be a price in, uh, increase for our product, we always do that with a consumer in mind and make sure that we maintain the right balance between quality, safety, and of course, value for consumers. Which clearly is the, is the hope. If we take a step back here, um, Enon, you've been through a three-year transition period, I think, for this company. You've been ruthless about cutting costs. You've exited certain manufacturing operations in, in places like China, in Canada. And then the second part, I think, of the strategy in the business here is just looking at the sheer quantity of intellectual property that you have and saying, look, how do we best monetize this? And we've talked about this in the past. It's taking you into into gaming. You've got 13 films now in the works. Just talk us through where you are in terms of your thoughts as the CEO of an evolving business and a business that, you know, as we've discussed, has great intellectual property. and, And you have to be clever about how you utilize that. Exactly. We own one of the strongest catalogs of children and family entertainment franchises in the world. 
And that gives us great opportunity, tremendous opportunity to extend our business beyond the toy, beyond the toy aisle. Uh, we can do great things on the toy side. There's plenty of growth and opportunity, but where, where we can do even more is extend our brands and franchises that have such built-in fan base of, of, uh, of people all over the world uh, and participate in other important categories such as film, television, video games, uh, consumer product and merchandise, music, and every, every category where big brands, big trusted brands are a key factor. And we see incredible interest from some of the, base, the best creators in the world, the most prolific creators in the world who want to partner with us, make exciting movies such as Barbie, Polly Pocket, uh, Hot Wheels, and many others, as well as great television uh, series and episodic content for fans all over the world. And it's really exciting to see the reaction, uh, the interest, and the momentum that we're having in this uh, exciting growth area for Mattel. There's an element of trust involved, though, that these things are a success. And the feed through then is that it lifts the product sales that, that you create, because it's an interesting business model. As you've said, look, we're, we're, we're capital light here. We're not funding the movies. We're not uh, funding the development, ultimately, of, of these online games. So how much upside do you actually get in the success of those movies or those online games beyond the fact that you hope it just boosts the sales of the, of the toys that you create? Well, we, we see this part of the strategy as business accretive. We're not making content in order yeah. to sell more toys. We make content, we make um, uh, games, we, we, we are participating in, in movie production. We see this as, as a business opportunity. The mandate is to make great content that people want to watch, create great experiences that engage consumers. We see this as a business opportunity in and of itself. And of course, if these things work, good things will happen. And we will, all, we will also sell more toys, but the mandate to the creators is to make great content, not worry about selling toys. We know how to do that. We've been selling toys very successfully. Uh, we are experts in creating evergreen franchises. And this is another step in the evolution of the company as an IP, as an IP enterprise, as an IP company that will be able to commercialize and capture full value of the incredible franchises that we own. Yeah. I think this is an important point for investors to understand as well. Mattel is no longer a toy company. This is about a huge diversification of what you represent and where the business lines are in the future. Talk to me about the adult collectible market and non-fungible tokens, because I think this is something. And we've also talked about this in the past that for some people, they just their head explodes when they talk about it. But you do see an opportunity for Mattel in getting into this space. Talk me through this. Absolutely. This is another great example of how we're able to extend our franchises to new opportunities, new domains, uh, digital experiences. NFT in this particular case is, is a growing industry, still nascent, but uh, evolving fast. And we were able to participate there as well and launched uh, three Hot Wheels um, uh, uh, cars that are designed for collectors. They're classic cars from our garage series. Uh, and they were auctioned uh, on Mattel, the Mattel Creation Collector platform. And we intend to offer more uh, during the year, including the opportunity for consumers to transact with cryptocurrency. Uh, this is another example how we can extend our business 
in addition to what we do on the toy side. And just to come back to what you said earlier, uh, we're still very happy and see great opportunities on the toy side of the company. We're not stopping uh, being a great uh, global leader in this category, which is growing and has potential in and of itself. What we do do is diversify and extend our business to other categories that are also driven by big franchises, big brands, and the opportunity between what we do on the toy side and how we extend our brands in other categories is the exciting part of uh, what we do. And, and just to be clear, people can pay in cryptocurrencies as well. You're not, you're not worried about the volatility, right. about some of the concerns. They were allowed to pay for these, I believe, in Ethereum. Absolutely. We offer that opportunity as well. We evolve as a company. We are looking to be progressive and meet consumers wherever they are and offer people opportunities to shop and engage with our brands in multiple ways. Yes, Mattel for the 21st century. Great to have you with us, Enon Kreis there, the Thank CEO you, of Mattel. Great to chat to you, Sarah, as always. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. markets are up and running this Wednesday. The major averages moving higher as we await the latest policy pronouncements from the U.S. Federal Reserve later today. A bit of relief as Chinese tech stocks have stabilized overnight to China state media trying to calm fears over Beijing's ongoing regulatory crackdown that has triggered huge losses for many of those Chinese tech firms and those, of course, that are listed in the United States. But the Nasdaq, the outperformer, up some half a percent early on in trade today. Strong U.S. earnings also helping sentiment. Boeing, the big blue chip gainer after reporting a surprise Q2 profit. You can see that higher by more than 5%. McDonald's and pharmaceutical giant Pfizer all reporting solid results before the bell as well. Pfizer raising its guidance as it moves ahead with developing a booster vaccine for the Delta variant. A mixed picture, however, for tech. Google and Microsoft gaining after last night's earnings beats. Google earnings almost tripling in the second quarter. But Apple softer on concern that supply constraints will impact growth. Starbucks shares also lower solid earnings, but sales in China came in below expectations. That stock down almost 3% in early trade. America's most decorated gymnast, meanwhile, has pulled out of the women's all-round final tomorrow. Simone Bar says she wants to focus on her mental health. The 24-year-old is the face of the U.S. Olympic team and was favourite to add even more gold in Tokyo. Selena Wang joins us now from Tokyo. Selena, a huge surprise here in the United States and much talked about, not only from the medal prospects, of course, but the fact that she chose to say, look, my, my head, my headspace was not in the right place and I didn't want to get injured and I'm stepping back and letting the other girls in the team take, take charge here. Selena, what are people making of it there? Well, Julia, among fellow athletes, she is being applauded for having the courage to know when to pause, when to stop, and to protect herself. It was such a huge shock when she initially announced the withdrawal from the team final. And the team said, the USA Gymnastics said that after further medical evaluation, she is now also withdrawing from that all-around final. And they're going to take it day by day to discuss and figure out whether or not she's going to be at those individual event finals next week. And it is just such 
a surprise to have perhaps the most visible face of the Olympics, as well as the star of the U.S. Olympic movement, to come out and make these statements. And Simone Biles has been outspoken about her mental health challenges. Just days ago, she had given an interview to The New York Times where she talked about the taxing, the difficulty that this sport is not only having on her body, but also on her mind. And she said she's not actually at the Tokyo 2020 Games for herself or even for USA Gymnastics, but for women of color, for gymnasts of color. She is also the only known survivor of Larry Nassar's abuse who is competing at these Tokyo 2020 Games. I was at her qualifier on Sunday in which she had a shaky performance. And Julia, after that, she said that sometimes she feels like she has the weight of the world on her shoulders. And after another shaky performance on Tuesday, she had a very emotional speech to the press. And she said sometimes it's hard when she is battling with her own head. And she hopes that by coming out, she is showing that these athletes, no matter how decorated they are, that they are also human. And Julie, it is just unimaginable the kind of pressure that Simone Biles was facing going into these games. Not everybody has a goat meme made out of them that says they are the greatest of all time. And her comments about mental health challenges, Julia, as well as Naomi Osaka's comments about mental challenges coming out of that tennis match in which she is now out of the Olympic Games, it has really just sparked this broader discussion, Julia, about the treatment of Olympic athletes and the immense pressure that they face, especially in this new society we live in with digital platforms 24-7, every part of their lives picked and analyzed at all times, Julia. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? If you were in or weren't in physical top performance, you wouldn't compete. But we tend to sort of suggest that you know, mentally, you just have to get on with it and you, you go out there and perform. And in her case in particular, it's dangerous to do so. Um, Selena, thank you for that update there. Selena Wang. OK, coaching company Better Up focuses on the link between mental health and performance. It offers coaching in areas ranging from diversity to parenting and uses artificial intelligence and behavioural science to track changes in performance. The company made headlines when it hired Prince Harry as its chief impact officer in March. It's just announced plans to expand into Europe. And joining us now is the co-founder and CEO of BetterUp, Alexi Robicho. Alexi, fantastic to have you on the show once again. And of course, you and I talked when you made that um, high profile hire of, um, of Prince Harry earlier this year. And we didn't really get a chance to talk about what you do as a company in more detail. And this is a great opportunity, I think, to talk about it. Just explain what BetterUp offers to some incredibly big clients around the world. Thanks, Julian. Lovely to be back. Yes, BetterUp is a one-stop shop platform for everything from coaching to counseling to mentorship. And as your conversation about Simone Biles, BetterUp's the leading platform for mental fitness in the world. And so we partner with some of the world's largest employers so that they can support their employees, everything from frontline hotel workers at companies like Hilton Hotels to managers to uh, junior executives at every level of the organization, helping people work on everything from leadership to growth mindset to things like sleep and nutrition, to even things like leading inclusively or parenting. And to your point, um, the time has never been more ripe, and we see more and more people are realizing, in part by the leadership of folks like Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles, that it's okay to prioritize myself and my performance and life and work, as much as that's based on technical job skills, is equally, if not more, based on things like my mental resilience, my psychological stamina, my own growth mindset, and my self-awareness. And so BetterUp is the leading platform that companies partner with so they can invest in their employees as whole beings, not just as 
not just as employees, but actually as human beings investing in that human growth and transformation at scale. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Do you do you work with any sports teams just out of interest? Yeah, we do have a couple. Um, I can't release the names, as you can imagine. Some of these organizations view better up as a competitive differentiator or, or some, you know, a way to supercharge their organization's performance. But we have had interest and in, um, some participation from sports organizations. Because we do tend to put more emphasis, and I, I sort of mentioned it there, and I'm sure you heard it on the, the physical performance in, in the workplace, less attention to where you are mentally. In the case of an athlete, you know, in her example, she could injure herself quite badly if she makes a false move, whether that's a physical issue or, or simply that her mind, as she said, she, she wasn't in the right headspace to compete and perform. Alexi, how do you track how your coaching and your support is helping? Because the AI aspect of this and the accumulating data just to understand how your support is providing a better, more productive workplace is quite fascinating to me. How do you justify spending on your coaching as a company? Sure. We look at data at three different levels in our data model. And then the first layer of that is we're looking at behavioral data related to engagement, to their learning behaviors, to areas, topics, and themes that they're focused on. Uh, The second layer is we do look at data related to outcomes. So depending on what solutions companies are using, that can be anything at looking at something like, you know, if I'm a sales professional, are we seeing over time things like quota performance increase? Are we seeing, um, you know, different uh, scores uh, at, let's say, a hotel location related to customer satisfaction go up? And then the third thing we look at is at a population level uh, and the individual's part of this data, we can actually look at changes in psychological resources and behaviors over time. So this could be things like we see things like cognitive agility improve. Uh, we see things like growth mindset improve. We think things like psychological resilience, which we know is really a uh, leading indicator of a lot of elite performance and um, of the ability to grow and adapt and learn in very quick and high-paced environments. So with these three different layers of this kind of data cake, you can imagine, we get the most comprehensive view of what does whole person performance look like. In fact, we just published some of the data in one of the uh, leading online medical journals. And what we found is not only do you see changes across 26 different mindset skills and behaviors, we're starting for the first time ever in human history to see what is the cadence or order of changes. And it turns out if you take something like leadership performance, that actually what happens when you're growing and working to become a better leader is the first things you focus on and the first areas you improve are actually these things related to thriving as an individual. There are things related to mental health. You actually see mental health increase first. Then you see leadership increase as a derivative, a derivative function of that. And so for years, for decades, we thought about these as two different things. Just like Simone, we may think about her performance as a gymnast as one thing, her mental health is a separate thing. And what we're realizing through science and through our platform is actually mental fitness underpins almost every type of human performance, whether that's leadership, whether that's a floor routine, whether that's if you're an elite operator in special forces, your mission effectiveness in the field. Um, You are and have raised money. You're expanding into uh, Europe, as I mentioned, uh, HQs in London, I believe, and uh, and in Munich as well. How much of the growth that you're seeing has happened since you announced that Prince Harry was going to be part of the team? I know you and I had some fun and games talking about that um, earlier (laughs) this year as well. Um, Just give me a sense and and how he's contributed um, over the past several months. Yeah. Yeah, well, he he certainly has not hurt our growth. 
Um, no, I, I'm kidding. He's been fantastic. Um, you know, we were fortunate. We were doubling and tripling mo- in year, year over year leading up into the pandemic in the years prior. And we've continued, continued to see that growth rate accelerate coming through the pandemic and out of the pandemic. Um, Harry has just been, you know, fantastic to work with. His portfolio is really focused on our global impact, philanthropic partnerships, and how we can continue to change this global dialogue around mental health being broader than the removal of mental illness, but really this focus on mental fitness and a strengths-based approach that you can actively cultivate and develop. But as we talk about expanding to Europe, you know, it's coming off the backs of we saw tremendous inbound growth in the past 18 to 24 months. Our European membership went up almost 200 percent during um, the pandemic. Our British membership went up over 200 percent. Um, we have over 40 European large enterprises that are headquartered in Europe. And we just crossed the proverbial $100 million ARR, annual recurring revenue rate, um, as a startup. And all of this we've seen has really been precipitous growth in the past 24 months. But we're looking ahead, Julia. We think we're starting a decade of hyper growth as companies are refactoring what work looks like in this post-pandemic world. And as we see more and more public figures and thought leaders from Prince Harry to Simone Biles and that, Naomi Osaka demand, be public about that, it's okay yeah. to be okay. Not Alexia, okay. I have to interrupt you because we've run out of time, but I agree with you. Hopefully as more people come forward and and say, hey, I'm challenged here. We'll focus on it more and we'll all be stronger for it. Alexi, great to chat to you. Alexi Robichaud there, the co-founder and CEO of BetterUp. Sorry to interrupt, but we've run out of time. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Marketplace Europe is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.